Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. This year, the United States is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women the right to vote. But a century later, the fight for equal voting access is still not over. In honor of this important anniversary and Martin Luther King Jr. Day, our podcast welcomed Audra Wilson to discuss the ongoing struggle for voting rights. Audra is the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Illinois. As a public interest attorney, Audra was thrust into the world of politics when Barack Obama tapped her to serve on his U.S. Senate campaign. Today, we're also joined by special guest host Jamar Orr, Roosevelt's vice president of student affairs and dean of students. Jamar is the first of several guest hosts that will appear on our podcast throughout the year. Hear what Jamar and Audra have to say about Dr. King's legacy and why voting matters today. So we are here with a very, very special guest today, Ms. Audra Wilson, who is the Executive Director of the Women's League of Voters. Um, and she's here for multiple reasons today, um, one of which is to talk with us uh, today about Dr. King and his legacy, but we asked her to join us for a special podcast um, as well. So I would love if you could just share a little bit about who you are and your background and what brings you here to Roosevelt. Sure. So thanks for inviting me. I am... Uh, a public interest attorney by trade, so I, I always have to give that shout out because that's where my roots are, um, and it's underscored most of the work that I've done professionally for the last 20 years. So I worked for several years with the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, and then from there I started moving into politics. I kind of fell into politics a little bit just as a consequence of working at the Shriver Center and working on a U.S. Senate campaign for for now President Obama. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was just State Senator Obama running for U.S. Senate. But that was a really important period of time for me because it was just getting so acclimated with what was happening in politics and how disengaged a lot of our, our voters are, what's really happening in the Capitol, what's happening with their lawmakers. And so I learned so much in that campaign. But I decided to um, return to my public interest roots uh, because I did miss those. Mm -hmm. I spent several, several years, actually about seven, at Northwestern University School of Law, um, where I did diversity education and outreach, and I was also teaching uh, a poverty law course. And I did that the entire time I was actually there, I was teaching. And then before I landed at the League, I actually worked for the United States House of Representatives. I was a deputy chief of staff for United States Congresswoman Robin Kelly in the 2nd Congressional mm -hmm. District of Illinois. And that was an exciting role for me because now I was getting both my Hill experience and although I was still able to stay in Illinois, but again, the perspective was a very important one. And I've used a lot of those experiences to actually take me to the league where I became executive director in October of 2018. And so that's where I am right now, kind of marrying all my 
my life experiences and my public interest experiences and my political experiences into this role. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an amazing career thus far, and I'm sure it's only just begun and still a lot more left to do. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about uh, whether or not you always felt that this was going to be the calling and the trajectory of your life. I mean, I think it's really interesting when you think about the law, right, and public policy, and to have that diversity lens on top of it, it seems like a, a very interesting mix. Did you always know you would end up here, or you know, what kind of led you to this? So I knew that I wanted to practice law, at least for some period of time. I was very fortunate to be exposed to lawyers in my family, which not everyone has the opportunity mm. to, to experience, and so that was helpful. But I didn't necessarily want to do the kind of advocacy that I was doing. I mean, I, I'm a child of immigrants, so I had that immigrant mentality, and it was about being a lawyer because it makes money and you can take care right. of yourself and your family. <laughs> right. So that was originally my, my motivation. But once I was in law school and started to intern and really learning more about the law and how it, it impacts every single aspect of our lives and recognizing that those that do not have access to lawyers and do not understand the legal system and legal processes really can suffer. And that's when I started to move more towards a public interest orientation and feeling as though I, I was responsible, quite frankly, for using my knowledge of the law and my law degree to help those who wouldn't otherwise understand how to navigate the system. So that was my motivation, quite frankly, for doing public interest work. And I've had no regrets doing that. I, I knew that I wouldn't be in a courtroom. Mm. I sort of resigned myself to that fact. So more of my legal advocacy has been in terms of public policy, so legislation and public policy making, which I'm very happy about doing. Much to the chagrin of my parents, it doesn't make a whole lot of money, <laughs> but I feel good about myself and yeah. I can sleep at night and feel warm and fuzzy and, uh, and all that good stuff. Well, speaking of, you know, kind of public policy and that legislation piece, I think voting is one of the things that a lot of people in today's society really take for granted. The idea of having a democratic republic requires that there is an active and informed citizenry, right? And so one of the things that Dr. King was a huge advocate of is the just the idea that everybody should have access to the ballot and to the ability, you know, to vote. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, you know, Dr. King and his legacy and the impact that he had on just the way that we think about voting and how voting has been such a large part of the movement for equality in this country. So much like many things over which he had influence, voting was critical. As a matter of fact, I was doing a little bit of research because obviously you know, knowing much about Dr. King's legacy, but specifically as it pertained to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, what I had found was, I did not know this, that he had actually written an editorial in this black-owned newspaper called the New York Amsterdam News on June 19th of 1965 because the House Rules Committee was holding up the legislation for the Voting Rights Act. And essentially, he had written this, this op-ed to kind of tip the balance, quite frankly, about why this was so sacred and so important about uh, reinforcing this right to vote and preserving that right to vote for all citizens. Mm -hmm. So this is something that was an integral part of his legacy. And quite frankly, all the fighting that he was doing for equality would mean nothing at the end of the day if individuals were not allowed to exercise that very hallowed, that sacred right to vote and participate in this system that ostensibly had been set up you know, like you said, the democratic systems of which for us to be active and engaged citizens, we have to have the opportunity to be able to participate. So mm -hmm. you can be as educated as you want, but if you cannot cast your ballot, if you're being impeded from that ability to cast your ballot, then it's all for naught. So I think the push for voting rights 
and access to the ballot was an integral part of his of his advocacy. It was an important part of his advocacy. It, it, he couldn't. You, you you can't separate that out, quite frankly. Mm. And that's what we carry with us at the league. There is no more hallowed right, obviously, than that right to vote, uh, and that's what we believe. The League of Women Voters is an organization that was born out of suffrage. Mm. And then educating, at the time, the 20 million new women that had now acquired this right to vote, thanks to the passage of the 19th Amendment, educating them on what does it mean to cast mm -hmm. your ballot? And how do we educate you? What do I do with this? Why is voting important? And so that was what our role was. Um, and it wasn't just for women. Um, but because it was born out of women's suffrage and it was educating this particular group of individuals who had now been given the right to vote, that's where the name comes from. But the organization today is an organization for all people, men and women, and particularly those who have been disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And it remains nonpartisan because, uh, contrary to the current administration, dissent is, to me, and I think to many people, a very hallowed American value. I mean, the, the right to be able to dissent without the fear of retribution from your government, you know, the, the fear of persecution is, is a very hallowed and, and unique American right and something that we believe in wholeheartedly. And we try to model what it means to have civil discourse, mm -hmm. um, even though we may not agree on issues. And I think it's wonderful. I love the fact that I can be in a room with five people that have five different opinions. But I also love as league members and as a league value that we're okay with that. We're not threatened by it. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, it educates us. We learn more about each other and we learn that we tend to have opinions that are filtered through the, our life lens. You know, we look at things through our life experiences and that's what underscores the difference in opinion. And understanding that and, and taking that into consideration as we're feeling, figuring out how to move forward is, I think, I don't want to say it's a unique skill, but I think it's something that unfortunately nowadays is missing, mm. you know, because we've become so polarized. So in a lot of ways, the league is a bit of a, it's a bit of an anomaly. Sometimes people look at us suspiciously, like you're, you're, you're this arcane organization who believes in that nonpartisan stuff. But if anything, we're digging in our heels even more like, no, we are the way that it should be. Yeah, this that is the time. Is the, this is the time. I mean, that is true democracy and, and being able to listen to differing opinions and dissenting voices and incorporate all of those. So I think if now more than ever, we are the model that should be. So on that note of listening to different voices, I think we can say a lot of things about Dr. King, his, his brilliance, his passion, his, his ideas about what the world could be. I think if we have one criticism of him, it might be uh, the silence of certain voices. And one of those um, groups that was often silenced in the civil rights movement were, were the voices of women. And their contributions to the movement haven't always been recognized in ways that I think that they should have been. And I'm so happy that you're here to, to speak to this. Um, I wonder if you can share a little bit about what the patriarchy of the civil rights movement has, has meant in the erasure of black women to the movement. That's a, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a tough subject because, um, and as a black woman myself, I have these these discussions with family and and friends, and we're kind of looking at the legacy of Dr. King, looking at the legacy of civil rights movement, and what role have women played, because it does it requires us to accept some things that are just a fact. Right. You know, it is, it's a hard fact to accept that. The sexism and exclusion of women is is not uh, exclusive to to white communities or other communities. It is as prevalent in our own communities. And I know that even in conversations and discussions about Dr. King and looking at his legacy, that he himself had wrestled with those sorts mm -hmm. of issues. I tend to be of the opinion that 
you know, we're flawed mm-hmm. <laughs> as human beings, as people. And it doesn't behoove us to hide and to pretend that those prejudices didn't exist and sexism didn't exist. Mm. If anything, it's for us to embrace that and to figure out how do we move forward. Some of the prejudice and the sexism that you see within the civil rights movement came from a larger movement, and that is if you're looking, for example, just at uh, the role of women in society, whether it's Victorian era or the industrial era, and this is some of the things that I talk about in my class, uh, we weren't immune to that too mm-hmm. as black people. Right. You know, right. so. <laughs> so <laughs> we were is, here then. We were as well. here as well. Right. And we were subjected to the same sorts of mm-hmm. conditioning, quite frankly. Now, it looked a little bit different because in our communities, you had women who, quite frankly, had to work mm. um, for various reasons why women, much more than white women, were sort of forced to be out in the workforce. And I think because you would see more black women out in the workforce really by necessity more than anything else, it would be easy to think that somehow, it's not that we're more enlightened Mm -hmm. or it was more of a necessity. Right. But that doesn't mean that sexism didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that those prejudices didn't exist. And because obviously there were so many things that we were experiencing as black people and having to to deal with and, and bond together, it's easy to overlook the fact that yes, there is that issue of sexism within our own communities. Mm-hmm. But it exists, and it is something to talk about. Black women, even in the suffrage movement, and which is something that I, I talk about nowadays, uh, women like Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. who's a, a Chicago institution, who had to ca- carry this mantle of, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about a lot of more progressive, liberal whites who had to wrestle with their own racism and their prejudice. So in addition to the fact that here we are as women trying to bond together, for women's suffrage, you have that layer of racism that's in there too. Mm-hmm. So so black women have been very unique in the sense that they have been dealing with both racism and sexism and from one or both communities or, or more communities. So it's just, it's it's a constant. Nowadays, I think we are able to talk about these things more freely. Right. And I think we can be a little bit more honest about it. My work at the House, interestingly, I um, my Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Kelly, along with two other congresswomen, started the first caucus of its kind on the Hill called the Congressional Caucus on Black Women and Girls. Hmm. And so it was the first caucus to look exclusively at issues that impact black girls, adolescents, and women disproportionately. And some of the most kind of powerful resistance or the, the loudest voices about why would you need a caucus like that came from black men. And we'd have these very interesting discussions. And I think for the black men that we would speak to, they'd say, but look at all these statistics about men in prison and men who are underemployed and men who are otherwise disenfranchised. And we'd have to remind them, but yes, but I can show you just as many statistics about what's happening to black women. Hmm. And again, you can't look at the surface and say, well, you have higher rates of employment and higher levels of education, therefore you're doing better. Because (laughs) if comparatively speaking, we aren't. Hmm. And it's a real struggle to be right. the breadwinners and, and the, th- those that are upholding our households. I mean, there's a whole bunch of struggles that oftentimes we don't even want to talk about contemporarily that are impacting black women disproportionately. So it's a challenge. It definitely is a challenge, even contemporarily, to talk about that racism, with, or excuse me, sexism within mm-hmm. our own kind of ranks. So when you think about the 100th year anniversary of women having the right to vote, you vote and you talk about Ida B. Wells, we'll soon be giving, you know, a lecture in the in a lounge named after Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. and the significance with which she worked to create this right for women. 
can you talk a little bit about what it means to be coming up on that 100th anniversary and why it is that we should celebrate that and what it is that it means that it still needs to be celebrated um, 100 years later? What does that mean for you? So I, starting backwards, I tell people that though we're here to commemorate and to celebrate, everyone should be a little shocked, dismayed, and offended that 100 years later we seem to be having the same variation of conversation. Mm. There have been significant advancements, obviously, that have been made. I mean, the fact that we are celebrating 100 years of women being able to participate fully, or almost fully. And the reason why I say almost fully, because remember, after the passage of the 19th Amendment, it was another 45 years before passage of the Voting Rights Amendment. Mm -hmm. So that is a reminder to people that the, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage is a great milestone, but to think that it took nearly another half century to really codify and ensure that right to vote um, truly in all people is, is disturbing. And that now we are dealing with schemes in, in different parts of our country Absolutely. to take away that right to vote. And it's like, why do we continue to have these discussions? Why are we constantly fighting for something that we shouldn't be fighting for, that on paper we have as a right, but yet there's scheme after scheme to, to disenfranchise people and to take away that right, which should be offensive to everybody, mm -hmm. quite frankly. So Ida B. Wells is so special to Chicago because she was someone, especially so early, to have such a strong and unwavering voice when it came to this. So not only was she pushing and, and fighting along her, her white peers and, and, and friends and counterparts about women's suffrage, but she was also there to remind people that you cannot extricate the legacy of race and racial subjugation mm -hmm. from this discussion of suffrage. Because unfortunately, this was a, a, a sticking point, quite frankly. Many uh, white women suffragists, you know, the suffrage movement was born out of the abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. But there were some political realities of, of trying to convince the white male patriarchy, the hegemony, that um, white women, or women, all women should have the right to vote. And so there were some racial politics that were involved, especially, for example, by the founder of the League of Women Voters, uh, Carrie Chapman Catt. She was a pivotal suffragist. Um, she played a pivotal role in the suffrage movement. But she was under a fire kind of more recently meaning in the last couple of decades, because of some of the, the compromises that people felt that she needed to make um, in order to encourage Southern voters, white males, to sign on to women's suffrage universally. And that was preserving white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And it's like, are these the deals that we make, that we strike? You know, mm -hmm. And are we, do we make the, and strike these deals for the greater good? And what does it mean about that, you know, you were abolitionist, and now here you are re re resorting back to that sort of kind of racial you know, politicking mm -hmm. to be able to advocate for women to vote, but that politic includes sub subjugating women once again, black women and right. black people once again. So it's it's a complicated history, and, and Ida B. Wells was a, such an integral part of the movement because she was there to wave that flag and to call people out and to call it what it was and to challenge her peers, her white female peers, about are you going to stand with us? Are you going to use this platform to talk about that racial subjugation? Even marching here in the city of Chicago when it came to mm -hmm. um, the passage of the, the 19th Amendment and being told that you have to march in the back. And it's like, no, I've been fighting alongside you the entire time and I have absolutely no, I, no intention of staying in the back. 
So that is why her legacy is so, so important. And many women like her, many other black women and Mary Church Terrell and others, mm. many other non-white women who are also integral parts of the movement, it's so important for those voices to be heard because again, they had to carry that dual mantle of not only pushing for women's suffrage, but also in that through that, 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 that realm of, of racism and discrimination for their respective communities. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up because I think there's this tension, if you will, as it relates to women's and women's issues, whereas you have the, the feminist perspective versus the womanist perspective. And when you think about the ways in which uh, black women carry a double burden in society, first by virtue of their womanhood, second by virtue of their their blackness, and then you put that against uh, the context of the Trump era, in which we know that a vast majority of uh, his election was due to the votes of white women. Mm-hmm. And you have to ask yourself, uh, in a time where women's rights are constantly um, under attack, how does one vote against what seems to be their own interests in some ways? And right, and I appreciate the ability to have different perspectives and viewpoints, right? I think that's part of what makes the fabric of America beautiful, but it also does call into question how we use our votes and do we use our votes in ways that are most affirming to us in ways that are supportive of our own agendas. And so I wonder if you can speak to that tension a little bit uh, that we, we see right now in our political discourse, where we, we often see that it's the, the black women vote <laughs> that had, in many ways kind of saves us is what there's a lot of the pundits are saying. So could you speak to that a little bit? You know, it's a, that's a, it's a perennial issue and it's, it's a difficult one to unpack because some of it, <laughs> it requires almost delving into the psyche of people, I think. One thing I always would say to my students when I, we were talking about poverty in this country, so the, the course that I taught was a history of social welfare programs and how our attitudes towards the poor affect contemporary social welfare policy. But I would ask my students, well, why do poor white people vote Republican? Now, keep in mind, I'm a, I'm a black female professor with an overwhelmingly white class. Mm-hmm. And so their jaws would drop, like, why is she asking us this? And I'm like, I'm just curious. And this speaks to your, your question about self-interest. I, you know, sometimes we don't really think about what that self-interest is. Maybe it's a privilege that we don't. Maybe it's just, um, I, I'm not even, I can't even say why we don't always think about that. I think as people coming from more marginalized communities, we have no choice but to think about our self-interest mm. um, because it's right in our faces. And speaking for for black people in this country, I mean, we are far more mo- motivated to think about our self-interest and how a particular candidate is going to impact that self-interest because this is what we're dealing with every single day. We don't have the luxury of not thinking about certain things. Mm-hmm. It's in our faces all the time. Many of us are struggling to figure out how we eat and keep our children in decent schools and have a, a job that will sustain us and decent health care. But yet there are communities that ostensibly are suffering with the same thing too, and yet they make decisions and support candidates that would seem to have absolutely nothing in common with you know, who they, at least not in touch with some of the issues that would resonate with them. Hence my question, why do poor white people vote Republican? Because I'm talking about poverty, and this is poverty across the, across the board. 
And unfortunately, that legacy of racism comes in there. When it comes to poverty, when we talk about this, we it's not sexy to be poor. Mm. We still have this very distorted notion of the bootstraps and pulling ourselves up our, our, by our bootstraps. And I would speak to a lot of my white students who would give these anecdotes about family members who perhaps were economically disadvantaged, but they would always be so proud about the fact, yeah, but they never asked for help. And I'm thinking like, but is that a positive thing? Mm. Like you're, you're admiring them because here they are struggling, they're working many jobs, they may or may, and this is before the, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, so mm -hmm. many of them had no health insurance but yet you think it's a value that they somehow managed to scrape by without asking for assistance. And have we so polluted our, our community to think that asking for help, you know, if having a government that has the ability to be able to help its citizens, especially when citizens hit hard times, is, is, a, is a bad thing. And amazingly, a lot of them really tended to believe so. Hmm. So, you know, and many of them also didn't see themselves the same way as, let's say, a poor black person, a poor Latino person, a poor anything else but white. They had to have that sort of distance. I can't be just like that. And so they would kind of fool themselves into thinking, well, it's, yeah, it's bad, but it's not that bad. And, and I can, you know, I, I'm not, I don't need handouts. I don't need whatever. So it's, it's an interesting uh, conundrum when I talk to people. I'm saying, why would you, irrespective of, your political ideology and mm -hmm. you know, how your family has voted. If you're looking at a candidate very carefully and, and his or her voting history, and if it routinely and consistently is voting against what would be your own self-interest. Mm -hmm. um, farmers are now starting to see it, manufacturers with a, this tariff wars. Now people slowly but surely are starting to recognize right. like, wait a minute, this is my self-interest and there are decisions that are being made by the administration that are not helping me. But is that enough to motivate them to, to, to vote otherwise? Because then what happens for those people that maybe start to question and scratch their heads and say, maybe it's not, then unfortunately the current administration has dropped the racism thing and the fear mongering, mm -hmm. the they, and those who are out to get you. The othering. And the othering. And quite frankly, it's a great distraction. You know, it's, it's, it's a great red herring out there. Mm -hmm. So people start to focus on that and forget about the questions that were starting to come in their mind about, you know what? This candidate really isn't looking out for me, even though we're of the same political party. So it's so easy to, to kind of to divert people by tapping into that fear of, you know, their, their fear of the others. Hmm. And they forget for a second that, I mean, to have the president in campaigning talk to people, white people in rural areas talking about, I love, I love my uneducated people. I would get so upset, I'm like, this man essentially called you morons. Mm -hmm. And you smile and you say, we love this man. I'm like, do you realize he just insulted you? He, he says, it doesn't matter. If you have no education, I know you'll vote for me anyway. Mm -hmm. I can stand here and I can shoot somebody and you'll still vote for me. It's like, and so sometimes when I'd have these very difficult discussions with people, I'd say, just step away from your, whatever your, your R, your D, your I, whatever your label is, and mm -hmm. think for a second. Under any other circumstances, would you ever allow someone to stand up here and, and say that to you? Right. You know, so, so really what we try to do at the League is we want people to understand by virtue of issues, what is that self-interest? What, what does resonate with you? What impacts your family? your community, your friends, you personally on a daily basis. And we really try to make sure people are looking at that when they're making their decisions as to who to support, not just this sort of reflexive, 
I'm a Republican, therefore I just vote straight right. ticket, without actually scrutinizing and say, do you deserve my vote? Have you done anything to deserve my vote? Have your votes, your voting patterns shown or reflected that you are voting in my self-interest? But that's a very difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. you know, social scientists haven't figured out how to do this. I mean, this right. is, psychologists talk about this all the time, so I do not purport to have the answers to this, but I, I do say that a lot of people really aren't being true to what's in their, their self-interest when they are casting their votes. A lot of people who are not, um, well, a lot of white people, unfortunately. I mean, not that there aren't people of color who don't make the same sort of oh, decisions. There's a lot of, there are a lot lot of those. Them. A lot there of are us. a lot of those. <laughs> oh, yes. There are a lot of those. But I would say, without empirical data, I think there are many more white people who, and particularly um, supporters of the current administration, who have fallen prey or victim to the othering and the tapping into those fears enough to look aside and... And, and to disregard the fact that notwithstanding that sort of rhetoric, there's nothing else that this person is offering you that would really is of benefit to you in your life and your communities. Earlier you talked about living in such a, a polarized time. Mm -hmm. um, and the beauty of your organization is that it's apolitical, um, although it's a very politically driven. It's nonpartisan. Nonpartisan. Well, we are quite political. Quite political, but nonpartisan. <laughs> non I think that's a better way to describe it. Um, organization. So I'm curious, because a lot of students listen to this podcast, mm -hmm. and a lot of students may be struggling with ideas and new beliefs that are different from their family members, right? They've come to college, and maybe they've encountered different types of people, have had some different experiences, and they're starting to understand that the world may be different than how they've been taught um, it actually is. So what advice can you maybe share with them about how you engage in those difficult conversations around politics with people who you may love, who may think about the world very differently than how you think about the world, or who may see things from a very different prism from which you see things. What, what would you say to those students? So there's probably two things that I'd say. The first, I would, I would remind students that, and something I said earlier, people filter things through the, the lens of their own life experiences. If you've only seen certain things or been exposed to certain things, that's how you're going to filter th stuff that comes in. Um, that's the only perspective you can use. You're not looking through other people's eyes mm -hmm. or their, their lenses. And so you have to understand, you have to be a little bit more sympathetic and understand where are people coming from and why are they so inclined to think one way. Because it's hard to change people, but I think sometimes there's not an appreciation of that, which leads into point number two. What I've found has happened with, I'm a Gen Xer, so not a boomer, <laughs> but I'm not a millennial. And so having that, that kind of dual lens of, I feel the sort of the, the push for activism like millennials, you mm -hmm. know, because I want to be out there. And many of our leaguers, even though they are boomers and older, but they, you know, they're aggressive and they're out there. But I also do understand the perspective of those who are older and recognize, I mean, you're talking about people who grew up. Uh, depression mm -hmm. um, in the height of the civil rights era um, they have a very different vantage point and perspective and that's how they're experiencing life and looking at life so we have to be very careful of not just reflexively wanting to dismiss or attack someone hmm. not attack it's a strong word but dismiss or uh, get frustrated with our, our, our family members it can be so hard, though. It, it can be it's very hard. hard. I get it. I get it. But I think, and President Obama actually talked about this too. We can be as 
as progressive, I'm not saying politically, but mm -hmm. just in terms of forward thinking as we want to be. But sometimes the danger of that is that when we feel like people are not in lockstep or it's like, what is there not to get? We get very impatient and we get very dismissive right. and we tend to write them off. And that is a danger because a lot of these, these supporters of the current administration are people who felt like they got written off. Mm -hmm. They may not have the same level of education as students who are listening to this podcast right now. They they may have grown up having to work since they were 13, 14 years old, right. and they have a different sort of life experience, and, and they haven't had the level of exposure as a lot of the students listening to this have had. And that's why they tend to think a certain way. But if you approach them in a way that makes them feel almost ashamed for not having had those same sort of experiences and or you ridicule them for mm -hmm. thinking a certain way without at least understanding like what might underscore why this person my family member is feeling this way then you're going to shut down conversation instantly so it is a tall order i'm asking anyone who is listening especially <laughs> when you're sitting around the dinner table with the uncle or aunt or your parents yeah. for that matter um you know who share views that are very different than yours just take a step back and say what might be going on with with person X, you know, whomever it is in my family? Why might they be looking at things a certain way? Where might the fear be? Um, there's sometimes the fear of the unknown, things that you don't understand. Mm. And I'm obviously no psychologist, but sometimes I say in my Dr. Phil armchair psychology <laughs> moment, I say, you know, I wonder whether it's hard for people who they have been inculcated, they have been indoctrinated to believe a certain way, even though now they're seeing all this evidence that what they were told and taught is wrong mm. or is it just not really the truth, that's a scary thing because it's like, well, this is what I've been told from, from, from the very beginning. From my parents, why would, I, why would they tell me anything different? You know, and, and now that you're telling me everything that I, my foundation upon which this has been built is wrong, that's that's a lot yeah. for people to accept. Like, so everything that I've been taught is wrong. So now where do I go? And so I think for some people, it's easier just to almost pretend that's not the case. They don't want to see the truth mm -hmm. because that that really shakes them to their core and to their foundation. And so that's why I say be a little bit more understanding and not accusatory, and then try to find examples of things that you know would really. Like, oh yeah, that's just not right. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes those are the small inroads. And let them slowly but surely start to recognize and see, hmm, you know, maybe I do need to think a little bit more carefully about this, or maybe I need to ask some tougher questions. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe I shouldn't just be so automatic in my, you know, my support of someone simply because they have the same letter, <laughs> you know, next to their name. Right. But it's that's a tough, that's a tall order. Well, my last question, um, on the dawn of what could be an election that really changes the trajectory of our country forever. What do you say to uh, a student or a person who says, my vote doesn't matter. It's all rigged anyway. This doesn't impact me. Why should I vote? I hear that all the time. And it's, it's kind of funny because sometimes I, I'm quick to say that is absolutely untrue. Where your vote, your vote counts, it absolutely does. And there are so many examples of, of votes that were narrowly won or lost in, the, in this society. And if people didn't have that attitude, who knows what the outcome would have been. Mm. We're talking about presidential elections, but quite frankly, where your vote has the most impact 
is at the local municipal level. And the reason why is because these are the individuals who are making decisions that impact your daily lives. Presidential elections are very important, just as are elections for the General Assembly, um, your federal lawmakers. But the ones that are probably closest to you, school board, mm -hmm. library board, you know, your local mayor, these are individuals that are making decisions that impact everything that you do. Your daily life. Your daily life. And yet, those are the ones where those singular votes make a huge difference. There are no electoral colleges mm -hmm. at that level. Thank God. It is, it is <laughs> thank God, exactly. So, so those are the sorts of elections where it's like, you know what, when you don't come out, then, and, and then your, your, whomever it is, the trustee or the mayor, or whomever it is that you're voting for does not get in, or you, that you would support not get in. And you can see the numbers. People are winning by five, 10, 15 votes. When you look at it from that perspective, you realize that every vote really does count. So you have to abandon that idea mm -hmm. that somehow things are rigged and, it, and it, it doesn't help me. Does that mean that there aren't schemes to disenfranchise you? Of course not. We know that's what we just talked about from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But don't allow the fact that there are people trying to undermine that vote. You don't want to give them a victory by just not going out to vote. People fought and died, mm -hmm. quite frankly, for you to be able to cast this vote. And, Though we have someone in office who thinks of himself as an autocrat, the fact is we are a unique country that has a democracy that people can vote and cast their ballots and express their opinions and through that, that the power to vote. And that's so unique, you know, compared to a lot of other countries in this world. And you, you absolutely cannot take that for granted. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Audra. This was phenomenal. I'm so thank glad you. we had a chance to thank talk you. today. I appreciate thank it. You. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.